0: Now let's say hello to my guest, standing by Dr. Hans Herron. He is an internationally respected scientist and the current president of the Millennium Institute in Washington, a research-based think tank that develops strategies for the world to move towards economic equality and environmental sustainability. In the past, he served as the director of the International Center for Insect Physiology and Ecology and also the African Biological Control Center in Benin, Africa. And he also was responsible for saving the African cassava crop in 1995, which averted Africa's worst ever food crisis. And he's received he received his doctorate from the Federal Institute of Technology in Switzerland, numerous awards, and um, we're happy to have him with us today. Nice to have you on.
1: Yeah, I'm very happy to be there too.
0: Um, you are a part of our conversations with remarkable minds series, and I want to begin by looking at. I'm guessing that most of our listeners are unfamiliar with agroecology. We usually think of two forms of agriculture in conflict with each other, large industrial agriculture with an emphasis on genetically modified crops in many instances, and then smaller organic agriculture that supports soil renewal. So I would appreciate you beginning with providing us with a background in agroecology, and uh, the founding principles of it, and how does it fundamentally differ from the kind of agriculture that is promoted through the new corporate green revolution that is touted by Big Agra and our USDA.
1: Yeah, uh, agroecology is really basically uh, an uh, agriculture which is based in the ecosystem, in tune with the environment, uh, but in addition to this, also in tune with the social uh, component of agriculture. Uh, which basically is actually uh, uh, two words, agri and culture. So agroecology really links not only a a sound agricultural practice like organic agriculture, but also it extends into more also the social area. Now, um, agroecology is not limited by size, so the idea that you know, organic or agroecology is something which is only good for small farmers uh, up in the Andes or somewhere in Africa, or maybe for the sort of the green farmers in America or Europe, uh, uh, doesn't hold. Uh, agroecology can be done at many different scales. The important uh, component here is, is that agriculture actually uh, in tune and in harmony with, with the, the environment and the people, which are also part of this ecosystem.
0: Good. Several months ago, the World Bank president, Robert Zole confirmed that the current food crisis is increasing dramatically in the number of persons suffering from chronic hunger, over a billion. And at the same time, an organization that I'm 100% opposed to, I believe it should be completely dismantled, the World Bank. That's the driving engine of globalization, and then it's financing arm like the uh, International Monetary Fund. and and But the World Bank then says, oh, the problem is um, it's with uh, not enough production. So we need to simply increase production dramatically. To me, that's an oxymoron. I'd like your thoughts on that. That we have to uh, simply produce more food. Uh, and it's not a question of how we're producing the food or the land use of the food. It's just more food, which means bring in more agricultural companies like Monsanto, use more genetically engineered food, that's the answer. And I'm saying to them, you're wrong. I'd like your opinion, though.
1: Well, you're no, you're totally right on this one. We today produce enough food with which we could actually feed, and I, I, I insist this, feed uh, 14 billion people. Uh, because if you look at the numbers, we produce 4,600 calories per person per day, which is actually twice as much as we should be eating. Now, when I say feeding, I, I, I say this in contrast to actually nourishing. And I think that still whatever we produce today on a global scale would be enough. To, to cater for the needs of the 9 or 9.5 billion people who will be by 2050. The issue really is what do we produce, where is it produced, and by whom it's produced. And, and so we need to rearrange the way we do agriculture on, on this global scale. America or even Europe have no business of trying to, to feed the rest of the world. I mean, how would the people in Africa or in Asia pay for that food to begin with? Um, So we, we have to give the opportunity for the people to grow their own food at the regional and national level, sure there will have to be some reserves uh, uh, and excess produced uh, in the U.S., Europe, Latin America uh, for years uh, when there is a catastrophe, a drought or something where we need some international exchanges or producing food for the people in the Middle East or in Singapore where they have no land to produce the food they need. But, but you know, in, in, the, in the bigger picture, uh, countries need to cater for most of their own food production. That's why we talk f- about food sovereignty, uh, and that's very important. So first of all, we don't need more food. We need to grow it in the different places. The different people have to grow it, and also for different quality.
0: All right. The past American administrations, both Republican and Democrat, have been pushing for the next Green Revolution and the major agricultural corporations like DuPont and Monsanto and individuals such as Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have been lobbying for this for a long time. Now my view is that the original Green Revolution led to a massive relocation of individuals who were poor but completely well-fed by having multiple crops grown and sharing those and different cooperatives in India and other countries, but they touted the Green Revolution through the Rockefeller Institute and as being the answer, and I believe the media was reprehensibly wrong in not covering the true impact and following up on this. So what would happen if we had a new green revolution? Would that also possibly lead to catastrophic long-term consequences? I do not believe it's sustainable. I like your views. And why is it so difficult for legislators and government to realize this? It seems that the independent agricultural organizations and scientists are failing to convince policymakers that a radical change needs to be made to sustain food production.
1: Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we don't really need or want, actually, another green revolution. We have learned our lessons, and we need to, to move forward, that we need a green agriculture, clear, but not uh, along the lines of the green revolution. Although the green revolution is, is responsible in some ways for having produced more food we need to also look at the cost. There were, as you mentioned, a tremendous social costs. People have lost the land because the Green Revolution forced basically farms to become larger and larger and larger, even in India, et cetera, because of uh, irrigation needs, because of more fertilizers, so the input costs, which were not, that was just not possible for small farmers. So a lot of people lost their land and their employment, their income, and these are the people who today actually are actually out there and hungry and cannot have access uh, to the food, which actually is even available, uh, so, so so that's why. First of all, we don't want green revolution because of the social issue. Now, the green revolution also had a tremendous impact uh, uh, on the on the ecosystem. Uh, We lost a huge amount of biodiversity in the last 50 years uh, because of of this oversimplification of the system with a few varieties, those improved, uh, short-growing varieties which were high-yielding. They displaced a lot of the land races. And why is this such a problem? It is a problem today because we have less variety, The new varieties actually are less nutritious. They have lost a lot of their uh, micronutrients and vitamins because the extra yield is actually extra starch. All the other elements have not increased. So so we have a a, a, a quality issue. We have less diversity, genetic diversity, uh, within the different varieties and across the crops, which means that we have less resilience in a a time when we need more diversity to have more resilience uh, in the face of climate change. So from an ecological point of view, no good. Uh, Never mind that we, with those crops, used a lot of more fertilizer, in particular nitrogen, which has tremendous impact on climate change also, from production to consumption of it. And uh, also uh, an increase uh, uh, in the use of pesticides and herbicides, because those plants, those super-duper varieties, also the GMO varieties, which are tolerant to insects and and, 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 uh, herbicides, have actually, if you look at the numbers today, increased the use of these products, uh, totally unsustainable. So, basically, from an, from an energy point of view, uh, uh, the, the green revolution has, has been only possible because of cheap oil. We know we already peaked in terms of oil and oil-based products. So, as we go forward 50 years now, there will be very few, little oil left. And whatever is left will be very expensive, which means that all the products which uh, (laughs) this green evolution agriculture is dependent of will be extremely expensive. So basically, you know, no matter how you look at it, from a human health side, from an environmental health side, from a resilience side, that type of agriculture is just bankrupt. It is not a solution forward.
0: I appreciate that answer. Thank you. I don't know if you had a chance to hear my commentary about how bad the water crisis is in the southwest and how it's going to impact at least 30 million individuals or more in the in the near future, uh, okay. but now we have to look at Africa and other countries, and what you have by the latest satellite imaging, which was just this week, they're showing a great deal of loss of groundwater, and historically... Villages and people living in a village of five or even ten thousand people never really drew down the water. So they had no impact on that. But now in comes the United States and hedge funds, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, China, the biggest player on the block, and they're buying up, and India, the second biggest player, and they're buying up huge tracts of land in uh, South America and in Africa. And they're displacing first all the people that have lived there through the millennium. They're gone. And now they're gating all this off, and they're planting monocrops for either biofuels or back f- through food, uh, to send food back to their own countries without any consequences, A, to the environmental co- consequences, to the nutrition of the people living there. So give us your idea, because we're not talking about peak water. And the average person doesn't even talk about peak oil, and yet we're past peak oil, and we're way past peak water, and now we're, we're approaching destroying quality topsoil, so we'll be p- past peak quality topsoil. So we're peaking in all these areas without any thought of sustaining a future where when we use natural and organic means, we don't negatively impact anything, and we're using these new green revolution. We negatively impact everything. Your thoughts, please?
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I didn't hear your your, your uh, the, that broadcast, but uh, obviously I'm quite aware of the the water issue uh, in the west of the U.S. here, uh, as well as in the rest of the world. And that's actually, uh, um, you know, probably the, the the biggest constraints we're gonna face because of climate change is, is water. And, uh, again, that's why we need an agriculture which is based on a long-term resilience and not short-term profits. Um, so as, as we move forward, it is clear that organic agriculture or an agriculture which is what we call agroecology, I mean, there's many different shades and colors there in, 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 the, in that type of agriculture, uh, but an agriculture which builds a better soil at each cropping cycle. That's what we need. Put more organic matter into the soil, and so we will have a soil that can absorb whatever rain there is. So we need to go less down and pump water up, which was very often is non-renewable, and so make better use of what the rainwater we have. And if we have less rainwater, if it doesn't flow or, you know, go off the surface, even taking away the good soil, I think we be much better off. And I have enough experience myself in Africa, as you mentioned earlier, I have done this and demonstrated all that, so it, it can work. Uh, basically, we can make an agricultural which is much more resilient to, to less water and to climate change. Now, what's happening with this issue of land grab, um, and, and again, you know, try to exploit the last little pockets of water which exist on the ground, uh, totally wrong. Because although people say what well, there's nobody there there 's always somebody everywhere and again, you can go to South Sudan or in the dry area of Africa. there are people making a living there either with with uh, uh, um, as, um, uh, with livestock, for example. Uh, or maybe uh, cropping every other year. So there's a lot of people living in in these areas, and certainly it's not uh, appropriate for big companies, uh, country, uh, or governments to go there and appropriate a lot of land in a way which is actually uh, very shady and non-transparent where people pay a lot of corruption money uh, to heads of states and ministers to actually have access to that land. Uh, so, so that's not on, and I think that should be fought you know, with, with all uh, means uh, we have well, well, to preserve the livelihood of those people.
0: You're listening to Dr. Hans Herren, H-E-R-R-E-N. His website is millennium-institute.org on agroecology. For those of you who are only listening to one hour, we thank you and bid you goodbye. For those of you who have Internet access, we'll continue for the next five minutes. Now, next week, we're going to set aside an hour to talk with uh, Anuranda Mittal, from the Oakland Institute, as he'll be talking about the dramatic rise of corporate national land grabs in Africa and other parts of the world, and China is well known to be doing this incessantly. However, it seems most developed countries are following suit, and so um, we will deal with that in a whole full hour. Now, my last question is this. Recently, we had an international conference in Durban, South Africa, Almost nothing covered in the major media. Then there was a careful analysis done of all the major media in the United States: ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, and Fox. How much time did they devote to climate change last year? Now, mind you, we had we had twelve billion dollar plus different disasters based on environment. It was 22 minutes. 22 minutes. That's it, in an entire year by our major media. So if we're not willing as a media to pay attention to it, and politically we don't want to focus on it because too many people are into global denialism, then how are we going to get this message out? What do you suggest that we do? to make people aware of the dangers of fossil fuels, that they're not sustainable, that we have to change all of our practices and get more nutrient-rich uh, produce grown. What is your solution? Since the media is not going to help us, the political parties are definitely not going to help us.
1: Uh, maybe we have to start an Occupy Big uh, Ag or Ag business Uh, To me, it looks like we have to create a mass movement from the bottom up, and that's actually also the words used just a few weeks ago in New York by Mr. Morris Strong, who was actually the originator of the Rio, uh, original Rio conference. And uh, to me, it looks like it is clear that we have to get the youth much more involved, maybe with the new media, Facebook. We have to figure out how can we touch the people and tell them that, you know, we only have not only have peaked i think in many areas we actually have reached the tipping point which will after that after which everything accelerates And to me, it looks like we really have to pull the alarm much, much more strongly and I think get the next generation much more involved because in the end, it is that generation and their own children which will be affected tremendously by by basically our uh, uh, lack of response to, to what we know we should be doing right now and should have been done yesterday.
0: Of course, there is the other side of that. If we do nothing... Then the tipping points of the 12 tipping points, at least four are in the process of tipping. Nothing we can do will stop them from tipping. We will simply have to look at the consequences and act, uh, act defensively from that point. But would you suggest, and I'm only asking this as a subjective suggestion, that we are more likely to hit a catastrophic event before it gets our attention to do something?
1: I think that we all see the brick, the brick flying towards our head and think we can duck it. I think it has to hit before we, we really realize how bad the situation is. And this is very unfortunate, you know, being human beings with so-called uh, uh, certain level of intelligence. I think that we should actually act first. But, again, I think the, the greed and, and, and the comfort in which uh, we are, I think, blinds us you know, from that reality that things could be quite different. And uh, we don't want to believe it until, I think, until we see it. And we have seen a little bit, but not enough to really, uh, I think, uh, have this broad effort uh, uh, to make the behavioral change we need to see uh, uh, to, to, to uh, move forward and in, into a better world. So on the hand, one hand, I think we can still do it. But on the other hand, I, I said you know, it has to be done now.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Hans Herren. I appreciate you giving us your input.
1: Yeah, thank you very much also for the opportunity. It the a pleasure.